Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I am excited to feature Kate Fowle, the director of MoMA PS1 located in Long Island City, Queens, New York. She was appointed in 2019 after six years as the inaugural chief curator of the Garage Museum of Contemporary Art located in Moscow, Russia, and director at large at Independent Curators International in New York. During her tenure at Garage, she oversaw the institution's transition from art center to internationally recognized public-facing museum, establishing new infrastructure, and developing departments of exhibitions, archives, education, public programs, performance, publishing, research, development, and communications. She also worked closely with Ram Kulhas and OMA to oversee the design and opening of Garage's first 56,000 square foot museum building in 2015. Her curatorial projects at Garage include several impressive exhibitions and commissions, to name a few, David Ajay, John Baldessari, Louise Bourgeois, Rashid Johnson, Robert Longo, Terence Simon, Jurgen Teller, among others. In 2014, she established Field Research, the first research-oriented program in Russia for artists. In 2017, she established Garage Triennial of Russia Contemporary Art. Kate has written several catalog texts, has authored three books, and established a number of publication series. From 2009 to 2013, she was the Executive Director of Independent Curators International, Previously, Kate was the inaugural international curator at the Allens Center for Contemporary Art in Beijing from 2007 to 2008 and chair of the Master's Program in Curatorial Practice at California College of the Arts in San Francisco, which she co-founded in 2002. Before moving to the United States, Kate was co-director of Smith & Fowl in London, and from 1994 to 1996, she was curator at the Towner Art Gallery and Museum in Eastbourne, East Sussex. It is such a pleasure to feature Kate Fowl on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Enjoy this episode. Kate, I am excited to have this conversation with you today. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Hi, Phyllis. I'm excited to talk to you as well. Good, good, good. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> yes, and I am pleased to be able to share with listeners uh, all the wonderful things that are happening at uh, MoMA PS1 also. So let's start talking about you, however. 
When did you recognize your love of the visual arts? Um, as a kid, basically. I used to, my first love was dance. I used to dance like five, six, and then it went up to like seven days a week. Mm. And uh, in between that, I got uh, seriously into drawing first and um, used to incessantly copy album covers that had George Michael on them <laughs> or these kind of like sappy 1980s uh, posters. They were called um, Athena posters in the UK and things like um, a woman that had like a slanty hat where you saw one eye coming out from underneath and then a, a cocktail glass that was like partly cracked with a heart falling out of it. And that's, I used to like copy things like this and then started just drawing anything I could see. That's how I got into it. Mm -hmm. And when did you decide to study art? Um, well, shortly thereafter, it's like going through school. I am the first person in my family to actually go to college. And when I realized that you could do something like spend three years focusing on making art, I thought that sounded like a great idea. <laughs> so um, I started applying to art schools, you know, basically from the age of like 16, 17, I thought it would be a great idea to go to art school. And I did. What career path do you think you would have chosen if you hadn't discovered your love of art? Hmm. Well, I remember for my fifth birthday, well, the very first thing that I wanted to be was um, a secretary because I love, I love them less now, but I used to love the whole idea of being able to have lots of things like paper clips and pens and different types of paper. And then I thought I wanted to be a nurse, but that's because lots of people in my family were nurses. Um, and then I thought I might want to be an architect that's because I wanted to build somewhere that I wanted to live in and then landed on art. Was there a particular artist that influenced you early on? Mm, I have to say, because I didn't grow up going to museums. I went with a school a few times. Um, and so I got into art by kind of loving doing it. And it was really, I mean, my, when I was doing my A-levels, I was doing it in a much more practical basis. And then on my foundation course, it was the same. So I can't say that I was steeped in art history or really following artists. I mean, I went to um, college in like 1987 and didn't know about all the art magazines. So it was really whilst I was at college that I started to understand that there's this entire universe that's out there. And that's actually how I got into curating because I got involved with an artist on gallery in um, Norwich in East Anglia, which is where I went to art school. And uh, it opened up a whole world for me. It's just like, I loved it. And I thought that I wanted to get involved in an artist run gallery because I became really aware of the fact that loads of artists don't get shows. So how do you make that work? How do you change that? Mm -hmm. What type of relationships do you have with artists? I have many different relationships with artists, but I would say that one of the common denominators is that they are kind of deep and long. And I know artists, I, I mean, it's funny, I was texting, I was in Miami last week and I was going around the new show at the Perez Art Museum and I saw a piece by Robin Roder and I photographed it and sent it to him and just said, thinking of you sending love. And he's an artist that I worked with in 1996 first in South Africa. 
you know, and it's like you you can't see people all the time, but I I love building relationships and understanding um, artists' practices over time and seeing how they evolve and change. Wonderful. The last year has been, um, I'll say, complex and difficult. One way to put it. How do you feel the Black Lives Matter movement has uh, impacted the mission of art institutions? That's a, that's a, a big question. Um, maybe I should kind of step back and say that I took on the directorship of MoMA PS1 in September 2019. And so there was five months before Friday, March the 13th, when we were going to shut down for two weeks. It was all the museums across New York City shut down and we could not imagine how we were going to survive two weeks. Everything was going to get horrendously behind, but we did it. And then September 17th was the time that we opened um, or reopened after that and you know the whole universe had changed and so someone like ps1 is extremely kind of responsive and reactive to both the kind of social and cultural and political uh complexities of the time and so i think uh, um ps1 to think about black lives matter on a kind of direct basis i think that at ps1 we were extremely responsive because the staff were out there and on the streets. And it became central to the conversations that we were having. And as a new director and thinking about the future directions of PS1, I'm looking back at the origins of PS1, which is started in 1976 and came out of a very similar period um, in New York City and I guess in the States in general, where it's time for change and it's time to actually recognize so many different issues that Black Lives Matter forefront with the way that you know, since the, the movement began, I think it was like in 2014, wasn't it? Um, you know, as it has gained momentum and as it has accrued um, many different voices and many different perspectives, it's like, I think that... The impetus for that is something that museums have to look at on a very deep level as the impetus for change within museums. Like we're the kinds of institutions and structures that need to be thinking in a very similar way structurally. Mm-hmm. And, and do you feel that the changes that we see taking place are long lasting? That is the big question. And what I would like to say is yes, but I... I'm not completely sure because I have to say that we've seen this before. So in the 1990s, for example, in the UK, when I I first started working in 1992, end of 92, 93, um, and very quickly, by 1994, 95, I was working with a woman called Deborah Smith who... Um, is black and we set up a partnership in the east end of London and that was the time when places like Innova, the Institute for International Visual Arts was starting. There was a huge groundswell of um, kind of 
various uh, initiatives that were really trying to push the integration of the different kind of art was in the UK, particularly focusing on the Caribbean. And there was so much energy and so much effort that went into creating these environments that were far more equitable and trying to bring a lot of uh, black artists and black curators to be kind of centered in the whole conversation. And so much of it didn't stick. I mean, Deborah Smith, my partner in Smith and Fowl, has been working for 20 years. And whilst I've been able to develop my practice in so many different ways, um, Deborah has predominantly remained kind of independent until and worked in many major institutions, done incredibly important exhibitions, like the very first K. James Marshall exhibition um, that travelled across the UK. Um, but it's only recently that she has been kind of looked at by institutions, although she's worked in proximity to institutions and they've invited her in temporarily. Now she's the director of the Arts Council Collection of England. And so you can see that there's this often this way that there's a huge amount of energy and enthusiasm that goes into changing the, the very kind of infrastructures that the art world exists within, and then it starts to dissipate again. So I can say that I think it requires a lot of us to fully commit and to say that this is not a moment, that this is fundamental to the future of museums, to the future of our kind of art ecosystem. And we adamantly have to say, yes, it is here to stay. And that means putting the work in to make it central to the way that we're practicing. And how do you feel trustees, how, how do they add value? And how important are they in this process of making sure that our missions aren't dissipated? Good question. I think that um, there are many different ways in which different institutions have different relationships with their board and with their patrons. And I think we can say in general, there is a shift that's going on at the moment, but there have been many shifts and cycles over the years. Speaking personally, I think it's very important that the trustees, the people who have fiduciary responsibilities towards an institution, um, but also put so much time and energy into an institution. It's, it's about finding ways of creating stronger relationships between staff and board, stronger relationships between the board and what an institution is actually doing, how it operates, what the issues are within the institutions, as well as, of course, bringing them um, in proximity with artists. And I think it's that kind of combination that is very, very important moving forward. There are some people who like to keep their board more arm's length. Um, I think it's very important that trustees don't get involved in making the decision-making of what the programming is within an institution, but um, to actually be the people who are really kind of... Uh, bringing their expertise from the, their kind of the backgrounds, the way that they work, the way that they think, and putting that into how to develop an institution, how to develop relationships with artists and create a more holistic or generative ecosystem. I've used that word twice now, but I think it's, it's actually really important. It's like there are so many um, trustees who have 
um, incredible practices as collectors. They have skills from other types of businesses and they're passionate about artists. And it's it's kind of um, trying to get them into conversations with artists in very different ways that are kind of a two-way street, if you like, so that artists can also learn from their expertise. I'm curious when you say conversations, mm-hmm. what type of conversations? Questions about, like, about their practice? No, I'm, I'm trying to take a kind of step back here because if, if this goes to the the whole question of um, why, what is art? Or what, why do people kind of gather around art? And um, I've tried to understand for myself what the simplest way of thinking about that answer is. And I think that art is a kind of manifestation. What an artist does is enable us to see the world in a different way. And the stuff that they produce is a reflection of how they understand the world and their perspectives on the world. And so often artists aren't necessarily looking at other art. They're looking at the world around them or their the experience is the world. It, it might be intangible or it might be kind of just literally the stuff that is around you. And so when it comes to conversations, um, trying to find ways of enabling people to talk about the stuff that art is expressing, the, the kind of ideas, the perspectives on the world that is inherent in the work, Um, as a starting point for conversations, I think can often lead us into much broader kind of like in the world discourse rather than keeping it in the realm of art. And when you think about that in relation to museums or not necessarily just museums, into making exhibitions and what a curator does, you know, you could write about art, you could um, present art in a commercial gallery, which often means you're working much more closely with an artist and the presentations that you're making are much more about trying to make sure that people see an artist's body of work in that moment and that you can place those works so that there is a a kind of economic cycle that can happen and money goes into artists' hands. When it comes to museums or nonprofits, economics isn't necessarily directly tied to the artist's work in that space. Instead, when you're making an exhibition, I think, you know, if you're choosing to work in that direction, you're working between three points. And that is the space, like the kind of physical space that you're in, the people who will be experiencing that exhibition and the artists or the objects that you're presenting. And so, again, that's it's a different way of thinking about a conversation and it might not be a conversation through words, but when you're juxtaposing either different artists' works or um, juxtaposing uh, different bodies of works by an artist, the spaces in between often say something or the types of narratives that you might be presenting through your choices of what you put together can trigger a different way of getting people together and um, starting a conversation. Does that make sense? Very much. And and thank you so much. I, I love learning. <laughs> so you just taught me something. Um, recently, I was uh, in your neighborhood, and I saw your mural, the um, PS1's new mural, Artists Make New York. 
Yes. I, th- I think that's the right question to ask you as a follow-up to um, what you just shared with us. Mm-hmm. What's that all about? Good question, Phyllis. Um, so that mural uh, was just unveiled. I lose track of it. It's like it's certainly this COVID time. A couple of months ago, we opened the exhibition Greater New York in October this year. And that exhibition is one that has um, occurred a number of times since 2000. It actually happens every five years, apart from this time when it's six years, because last year didn't count. Um, And Greater New York uh, was an initiative that started when PS1 first um, became affiliated with MoMA. So it's an exhibition that in the first instance was um, curators from MoMA and curators from PS1 working together to look at what had been happening in New York in in the five years before that. So emerging young voices, you know, what was interesting. And as it's happened every five years since, this is the fifth iteration of it. And of course, the each time it's presented, there's a different kind of thinking that the curators bring to it about how they want to talk about Greater New York. When I started working at PS1, uh, which you know was kind of virtually at the beginning of 2020, um, what I knew was that making an exhibition called Greater New York every five years as this commitment to presenting artists' work is important. But what is um, more important is showing that commitment to working with artists year-round, all day, every day. And at PS1, as well as at many institutions across New York, of course, there's a lot of time spent supporting artists, you know, that we would consider local in the, in the Greater New York area. And so I wanted to kind of double down on that commitment and start to show a shift that you'll be seeing at PS1, which is the way in which we can be supporting and working with artists, as I said, all day, every day, moving forward. And so the phrase Artists Make New York came out of that. On the big wall that you're talking about, which you can see as you're walking down the street, um, for a long time, it has either said, Uh, PS1 or from 2000 it said MoMA PS1 and this is the first time it hasn't named the institution on the wall but I figured that 21 years into the relationship with MoMA basically if you've if you've got to the door you know where MoMA PS1 is it used to be that you could sit on the subway on the seven and you would see it um, on the train coming in but because of the rapid gentrification of Long Island City, you now can't see that. There are so many tower blocks, residential blocks um, in the way that you can't actually, you don't get a sight line anymore. And so what I wanted to do was um, make a statement about our commitment at PS1. And I like the play of the word make in that kind of statement. Artists make New York, the word make going both ways in terms of them making New York physically, but also like artists make New York as in like without artists, what would New York be? Mm-hmm. So it's the beginning of um, an initiative, a number of initiatives that will be, you'll, be see, you'll see coming out of PS1 in the coming years. Has the surrounding communities embraced that? Um, I'm happy that you use the word communities, plural, 
again, I'll, I'll go back a little bit. When PS1 opened in 1976, there were, I mean, it, it is said that there were around 7,000 people living in the neighborhood. Because at the time, Long Island City was a predominantly industrial kind of zone very close to Manhattan. Um, it's questionable about that 7,000 number. But what isn't questionable is between 1976 and now, there's been a dramatic shift. There's now um, 170,000 people living in Long Island City. Mm. And what's interesting is looking at the people who have lived here for a number of years in relation to the people moving in here when you have that kind of rapid growth. And I'm fascinated to understand how long it actually takes in an evolving neighborhood like Long Island City to actually say that it really is a neighborhood and there really is community. Because I think at the moment there are multiple communities and there's as many different um, perspectives on uh, what's happening in the neighborhood as there are groups of people. Um, there are some people who have no idea what PS1 is and there are other people who are very committed to having it on their doorstep as a place to come and hang out. And then there were people in between who we're starting to kind of work with who have a real interest in culture and particularly in the visual arts um, or in kind of experimental practices um, that we're starting to build relationships with. And it's really important to me that PS1 does embed itself in developing a sense of kind of local and neighborhood in various ways. It sounds exciting. I am extremely excited of the potential. It's like, what better? It's like the team at PS1 is unbelievable. There's around about 50 of us. It's an old school building, 19th century school building. So it's uh, not your average white cube. Um, it has all the creaks and the foibles and the like lack of heating and the creaky floorboards that an old school would have. Um, and it really is a kind of, it's, it's a place where you feel a sense of freedom to be able to experiment and test out ideas. Yeah, there's so much potential. We just end the damn pandemic because <laughs> then this could be easier. Gathering in masks is getting wearisome, but it's so important to, to do that right now, but it's just like, it would be great to have, have much more flexibility in the way that we gather. So I'm going to ask you a question and you've answered it sort of indirectly. What do you feel is the purpose of art? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the starting point for me is that it's a way of seeing the world that is kind of open enough for people with different perspectives to be able to kind of convene and learn something different through it. Um, fundamentally, art is a, um, a way to express yourself. You know, I think if you're a maker, there's one purpose of art. When you are somebody who's on the receiving end, there's a different way. And of course, you could be a maker and receiver or you are, um, you know, many, many times. I think that one of the things that is super important about art is that it creates a different kind of language. Sometimes 
but a lot of the time, even without words. And to start thinking about how we experience, feel, think, see the world without always having to articulate it in the same way, um, I think is an incredible uh, gift that art gives us. And I think the fact that it enables a kind of, a, it's like, it's more like a kind of matrix way of seeing things because you can, you can see multiple perspectives. You can have multiple thoughts. You know, there can be many, many layers as to the way that you can be inspired by art because it's not linear in the same way that much language is. Yeah. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. This is going to be our last question. How do you want to impact the art world? I love the fact that you leave a giant question <laughs> as the last one. <laughs> I, I'll start with the kind of big picture, what I, the, the way that I've seen in terms of me impacting the art world. I feel that my life commitment is to artists and to understanding what it is that they need, think, learning from them in terms of the way that they work. And so I would say that like putting artists at the center of everything that I do is the way in which I hope my, the impact that I have kind of manifests itself. Um, but in terms of where my skill set lies, I am passionate about institutions and about understanding how to create institutions that really work um, for artists. And it goes back to this kind of triangle thing that I was talking to you about, thinking about space audience and artists and recognizing that artists are also audiences it's like how do we create the environments and the conditions moving forward that enable everything that I think is so important about art and the ways that we can see the world through artists to be shared and to manifest and as we know going back to the kind of the black lives matter almost as a kind of shorthand there are the institutional structures that we inhabit at the moment are basically 20th century models and we're in the 21st century. The question is what kind of structures we need to create in museums. And what I love about PS1 is the scale of it and the fact that it was born out of experimentation and committed to it. So how can we start to think about institutional experimentation? And how can we start to think about the way in which museums particularly at the scale of PS1, can start to create new environments and new uh, ways of thinking about what art institutions could be in the future to serve artists and to give us new perspectives. Well, thank you for being that passionate <laughs> about artists and helping art institutions think through the changes that need to be made and the responsibilities. Thank you so much for your time today, Kate. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Phyllis. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. Instagram.